Hello and welcome to the Warfighter Training and Simulation Podcast with Colin Hillier and Tom Constable. Hello, Tom. Hello, hello. Well, Tom, I have to say it's been a great weekend. I finally got rid of all of the rust holes on my Land Rover chassis. That's not an achievement. I don't know what is. The fact you've got to start the podcast, you introduce it, and then the only way you can bring in your personal hobby is to bring it up yourself. (laughs) I love that. Colin, did it bring you pleasure? And when will you have the finished article that we could share to the listeners? All I've got is a chassis. The finished article (laughs) is going to take many years. The point is it's good to have something completely different and manual to work on. But Tom, let's talk about one of your hobbies. What have you been working on? (laughs) Yeah, well, I can't tell you. Well, what I mean is I can tell you, however, I'm going to tell you later on in the podcast. It's based on the fact that you and Andy set me a challenge last week in order to use artificial intelligence to provide answers to questions. So I have taken that challenge and ran with it and got a little bit overexcited, some may say. So if listeners, if you want to hear me reveal all, please stick around until the news segment of the podcast, which is just after the interview, and you'll see me using multiple artificial intelligences to produce an output. And before we move on, of course, we mustn't forget to talk about our kind sponsors, Improbable. We're very grateful. We can cover a lot of interesting topics on this show. We don't have any boring adverts, and that's because people like Improbable go and uh, allow us to do what we do. So many thanks to them. You'll be hearing more about them in the next few episodes to come, doing some deep dives into their work and some of the personalities involved. So very much looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to the crux of the episode, which is the interview. This week, it is a big pain point for small to medium-sized enterprises within defense, which is the challenge of how do we cross the chasm, as Colin would call it, or or myself, is how do we avoid the innovation valley of death to get to the other side and get these products into defense. And we thought, who better to speak to than the Defense and Security Accelerator, which is a UK organization that really focuses on supporting small to medium-sized enterprises to do exactly that and provides funding to enable innovation. Anything else to add to that, Colin, before we move in? Yeah, I mean, really interesting discussion. And one of these things where as you dig into it after the interview, you actually learn a whole shed load more. So I think the difference in the terminology is actually just different terms, the same thing, two two sides of the same coin. But it's how do you move on from an early technology readiness level to something that can actually be used mass market? It's really hard to get from that prototype to mass adoption. Now, defence has some interesting peculiarities that make, in some ways, some things harder, some things easier. Um, (laughs) But again, really interesting to hear from them firsthand, their view. As ever, thank you for the guests for giving us their time, Stacey Crump and Tom Adamson from DASA. Welcome both to the podcast. I keep saying this, but this is our tradition now, so we get you to introduce yourself because nobody knows you better than you. Hi, I'm Stacey Crump and I'm the Partnerships and Impact Lead within the Defence and Security Accelerator. And I look at how we partner with the Defence and Security organisations, as well as how we can have the greatest impact for those customers with the innovations we fund. By definition, your customers are SMEs? Our customers are the defence organisations, so in the Ministry of Defence, and also the security departments across government, including the police forces and Home Office. The Department for Transport, interestingly. Didn't know that. That's good to know. And over to you, Tom. Thanks for having us both. My name's Tom Adamson. I also work for the Defence and Security Accelerator. I've got a slightly different role to Stacey. I'm an innovation partner, so I'm one of 12 people who are right on the front line of what data does. So we are the kind of the gateway to the organisation, if you like, from the SME or the micro or the academics point of view. So my job is really, I'm a bit of an innovation scout. So Mm -hmm. a bit like a football scout that looks for the next generation of players for their team. 
I'm out there looking for the good ideas, the disruptive technology that could benefit both defence and security across UK government. So if you think of a pipeline, I'm at the very start of the pipeline and Stacey's team is kind of near the middle to the end of the pipeline. I'm trying to get things in and Stacey and her team are trying to maximise the value to defence and security in a nutshell. Well, thank you both for for giving us your time to give us the benefits of your wisdom. This is an episode that both Colin and I have been very keen to get out because we've gone through the process and been working with or part of SMEs trying to break into defence, therefore crossing the chasm, which is the concept which Colin will explain from his perspective what what he believes it means. But it it is a real thing and it's a real pain point. And it's something that I think we're definitely exploring a lot more detail. And the main effort for this and for the listeners I want you to get out of this is understand that Selling into defence and government is challenging. However, there are routes and ways to do it, and it's about being informed to allow you to become successful. Firstly, uh, Stacey, could you just give us a bit more background on DASA? What were the origins? How long has DASA been around? And I believe it's superseded previous organisation. How does DASA differ from what went on before? Um, yes, yeah, so DASA has been around for six years now, or just coming up for six years next month. Prior to, to DASA, there was the Centre for Defence Exploitation, Enterprise, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right, which, yes. Which, yeah, which existed for a couple of years as well. Really, I think DASA is that recognition that we needed to do greater investments in innovation. So we came out of the spend review quite some time ago now, like I say, over six years ago, that will have taken place. And over that time, we've had access to over £190 million pounds to invest in different SMEs and there are primes and higher tier in there and academia as well. So it's just giving that real genuine support for innovation on a much broader scale and trying to diversify the types of ideas we can support and fund to bring into defence and security. Just because we have a few international listeners, I mean, there's equivalent schemes like the sort of US cyber programme. Is it similar to what might happen over in the US or other countries? I think whilst we'll have taken bits of other organisations, I think we're quite different in the sense that we have grown quite organically. The services that we offer have evolved based on what we've learnt from the people we work with. So learning both from the people who provide our funding within defence and security, but also that influence, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises, understanding what the challenges they are facing to effectively bridge that chasm and get into the organisations that we serve. So really, we have evolved but it is based on what we've learnt from those who work with us. So it might be useful just to give a flavour of the sort of schemes when we say sort of investment in innovation. How how does that actually work day to day? I'll take that one. We have lots and lots of different options for people. And I think that's one of the strengths of our organisation. I think in general, when you're talking about crossing the chasm, I think that's a, a real solution to that problem is having a wide range of both support options. So support available that isn't necessarily cash, but that supports innovators who want to innovate across defence and security, and then having the cash or finance or equity options the other side to take those ideas to the next level. So in terms of what we do, we offer a wide range of funding options through traditional contract funding that we're most known for across the UK and internationally. So that would be our open call and our theme competitions. And they are typically competitions for 100% of the costs of the project up to in and around technology readiness level six. We also have 
other options to help people commercialize further. So we have a defense innovation loan scheme, which is a traditional kind of finance scheme, really designed to help companies build a business behind the innovation. That's not really a starting kind of product. That's a scaling product with the idea being that you might have had some data funding in the form of the open call or our theme calls, and then you use the innovation loan to scale, to maybe scale your prototype or to put you in a better position to scale up the technology readiness level scale to ultimately enable you to sell your idea to defense or security. Uh, We also have a defense and security seed fund. So that's traditional equity investment. And then finally, we have a grant funding mechanism, which is specific to the UK. So your international listeners will be less interested, but that's really around supply chain strengthening within the UK uh, on behalf of defense. Just going to this concept, we've mentioned it a couple of times about crossing the chasm, which actually comes from a book that many people have recommended to me over the years, which is by Jeffrey A. Moore. And I think what we'll do is we'll put in the show notes a, a brief four-minute summary of this. But essentially, that book describes the sort of innovator's dilemma that many people face, which is how do we bridge the gap between the visionary early adopters, so you know, you know this type that like the new technology and what we call the pragmatic majority. Because in reality, we have people that like new technology willing to be a bit more risk, you know, take, take bigger risks. And then probably the 80% of us that just need stuff to work and need to be supported and things like that. Stacey, maybe if you could talk a bit about that, is, is that how you see it in terms of, is there a parallel to that in defence and, and security? There is. And, and the real challenge is that a lot of the, the budgets and the plans are, are worked out a long time in advance. So you're you know looking out 10 years or so. So the way we try and overcome that to help the innovators come work with us is to actually partner with the organisation. So we have people out within the frontline command, so the Army, Navy, RAF, etc., working alongside them to understand the challenges they face, but also preparing them for being able to work with the innovators, see new ideas and understand how they might be able to fit those into their plans and take them forward in the future. So for us, part of the challenge is getting in there early and making sure that everyone is ready to support innovation at every step of the way. Yeah. And I would, for us to say for defense, I've been that person. I've come up with a good idea in my in-law's house with a VR headset on going, you could sell this into defense. You could build something here for military training. But I was just Tom Constable PLC by myself and hadn't ever sold any software or anything into defense before. And it's a very lonely place. So it's not even early adopters in lots of ways. It was a case of, I didn't even know where to start. I didn't even know how to get to the start of the chasm, let alone start bridging it. So I suppose it would be worth giving you a Joe Bloggs scenario and you guys can take us through a journey of this Joe Bloggs with this widget and how the UK government, but again, this is not a problem that's specific to the UK government, it's government-wide, it's not even government-wide, it's industry-wide, like Colin says. It's anyone that's doing innovation, there's this chasm that's got to be crossed. I would argue that in defence it is a deeper, wider, darker, scarier chasm than actually outside in the civilian world. So would it help if I gave you a little scenario and you could help me cross the chasm? Yeah, let's go for it. And we'll probably we'll start it. with Tom for you on this okay. one. Okay, perfect. Oh, this is fun. So I am Joe Bloggs. I have created a magic widget. I'm, I've got no military background. This widget, I think, has clear application and value to defense from my perspective. However, I don't know where to start to sell into defense. So I suppose whereabouts would I, should I, or could I start looking for that kind of advice and guidance? I think the key is in intercepting that person before they've even got anywhere near the chasm, right? And I think the first thing to do in that scenario is have a pipeline for people like that who... Who have no real, who have no real knowledge of defence, but they have a great idea, right? 
they have a great idea that they think could be very transformative, but they're not really sure maybe where it could be transformative or who mm. to approach or yeah. um, what even bit of the of the armed forces might be interested in that widget or that idea. And that's where an outward reaching organization really has to try and scoop up those people um, and support them at the very, very early stage before they've even thought about, like I said, approaching the chasm. So it's quite important that you have a, an outward facing element to your organization to attract those people in, because mm -hmm. as you discussed, they may have no contacts within defense or security. They may not have much knowledge of the industry itself. And they need to speak to somebody who's fairly neutral in all of this and who has got some knowledge of the defense or security industry. Essentially, that's where we in DASA come in. We allow people to access that pipeline through our front door. So we have a very open front door that allows anybody to come into it. And they may be within the UK, they may be international, it doesn't matter. We have 12 outwardly facing partners, of which I'm one of them. You can come through our pipeline at any time and come and speak to us. That can either be through this kind of medium, so uh, virtually, or we'll come to your facility and have a conversation about your idea and the potential fit that that has into defence and security in the first instant. And that's even before talking about any kind of funding or any kind of money, just to sound out your idea, just so that that person can have somebody who's reasonably knowledgeable within that kind of context to give them your opinion mm -hmm. on their idea. So I think that's the very first thing and the very first aspect of crossing the chasm is actually putting somebody in the best possible position to start to cross the chasm, even before we've talked about funding. JBlogs is feeling more confident now. So I now at least feel like I've got someone I now can ask stupid questions to Absolutely. and be able yep. to make sure we don't make those silly mistakes. Of course, I think, so I think on, part please. of it is just knowing where to turn to as well, mm. right? I mean, we talk about defense particularly within the uk it's quite a big place and it can be very confusing to somebody who's not on the inside of it mm -hmm. you know the difference between the research program within defense versus the procurement program versus our you know our user community and all of the organizations that sit around those and all of the ways that people engage with those organizations i think there's definitely value in having somebody right at the front who can at least take somebody through that process to explain to them this is where I think your idea sits. Mm -hmm. And this is the best approach that I think you should take in terms of how you accelerate that idea, be it technology, material, process, it doesn't really matter. And I think A, having that pipeline and B, having a person at mm -hmm. the other end of that mm -hmm. is key because having somebody to talk to and having somebody you can build some rapport and trust in, in a industry that you have no other contacts within, I think is absolutely key. I would say that's possibly the most important thing about trying to get and attract people into this and to try and put them into a position where they are thinking about working with defense and security and they are even approaching that chasm regardless of what happens within it. I think that's absolutely fundamental. I mean, clearly yeah. we're sort of divided by a common language because I guess Hollywood has a lot to answer for because certainly when I speak to civilian friends, that Hollywood view of what the military do versus what actually happens, plus the language, plus the culture, it must be very confusing even to understanding things like, like force structures and things. Is that where you're sort of helping companies and organizations and individuals? Yes, a little bit. Demystifying the kind of defense landscape, I would say, is a big part of it. I think there's also what effectively we're trying to do right at that front end. And again, it's crucial is removing potential barriers to entry mm -hmm. because there are a lot of perceived barriers and there are some actual barriers to entering the defense market. Now, that might be you having a security clearance, you being a UK national, your company being accredited or your organization being accredited to handle classified material. All of those things are potential barriers to entering this world. This world that's from the outside might 
appear very big and very scary. And what we are trying to do, and what I think is also key in initiating some of these ideas from the non-traditional supply base from people who've not got any kind of preconception of this area, is by removing those barriers to allow those people to at least start to work within defence and security. Now, ultimately, if they want to become a supplier, they're probably going to have to to sort some of those things out. But to get them in, at least to the pipeline, we need to make it as easy as it possibly can be to attract as many people as who want to work within our industry and want to innovate within defence and security to do that. And I've got some questions. I'm not sure where this lies in our scenario or Joe Bloggs or, or in the chasm. So I'll ask it now and maybe you could tell me where it would sits in the process. What I found with just my scenario with the virtual reality technology, and at the time it was just becoming COTS, uh, commercial off the shelf, and no one really knew how to implement this new technology. No one knew where it lay, and there certainly was no procurement line item for the technology. So whose responsibility is it or where does it lie to educate the commands to go, look, this is new technology coming through. I know you haven't used it yet. However, there could be value here. And how do we start generating those requirements? Bearing in mind, it probably takes a number of years or it does take a number of years, hence the the big, dark, scary chasm of doom. So I have essentially people who are deployed out in those commands. So they are there to help the commands understand what opportunities there are and what we're mm-hmm. seeing coming from innovators, understand whether it could apply to things they haven't even started to think about, the challenges that aren't on their you know nice lists or the various papers that are out on gov.uk, but other things that they could apply them to. So it's getting that visibility and understanding of the ideas that are out there and are testing whether they're ready and willing to, to consider those and building that comfort zone. So we've got the team who do that, but we've also got our exploitation managers. So they are the people that do some handholding through the process, particularly for these small and medium-sized enterprises, to help them talk to the right people, get in touch with the users and work well with them throughout the process and make sure there's common language between the two because one of the greatest challenges is that we all speak a very different language and if you look at our you know there's an acronym buster out there for defense which uh, you could update every day and you still wouldn't (laughs) be quite up to date we have to try and simplify the language that we use and we have to help our innovators use language that our people understand too so there's a bit of being there to help both parties meet halfway essentially and build that interest so My next question, and this again, like Tom, comes from a bit of personal experience and certainly talking to people at both sides of the pond. I think we all have the same challenges. So let's say we have the good idea. We come to people like you. You help us understanding, funding, great. Start that first project, deliver it, lots of good response, which is really the true chasm is going from there to, okay, how do we sell 100,000 units, how does this get into service? That piece, and I guess, is that still part of your role? How do you address that going from prototype or mature prototype into steady state use within the the military? So as an organisation, we don't procure the things ourselves, but what we do is try to create the conditions to support it. And, And that has changed over the past couple of years in particular by looking at things like we've got first customer fund, which actually is the opportunity for, say, the Navy to buy the first batch, essentially, of a product or the first 100 or 200 licenses of a a product so that they can really understand what that thing could do for them and what is it they actually need to support their requirements. So that's one element where there's a, it's not the first 100,000, but it certainly is the first decent batch that that supplier. So we've got that opportunity, but also we've got to consider whether 
SMEs need to partner up with a higher tier supplier. So some of the the larger businesses who already have a significant role within the defence and security sector. So we actually help facilitate that in a number of ways, both through some of the events we run, but we also have other grant funding associated with that, where we have these small and medium-sized enterprise in the lead. So the critical thing is they're in the lead because it's their product, their idea and innovation with the higher tier supporting them to make sure that they have built themselves up in the right way as an organization and can have that reach into defense through their support. So it's about a lot of the time of getting the right partnerships in place so that we can give the SMEs the routes that they want to have as much as anything. That partnering approach, because that sort of thing has been proposed for a number of years, but clearly you're nudging industry to work with innovators. I mean, that sounds intriguing, but it's quite new. I guess you haven't sort of seen how that plays out yet. Is that correct? Tom is seeing uh, some of that day to day at the moment, so he'll be able to get a better view of how it's going. <laughs> How's that working? <laughs> yeah, no, well, that is literally brand new. So we haven't even gone through one round of assessment of that yet. So it's very difficult mm. to kind of comment on a success yet. I think early interest has shown that it's going to be incredibly popular. And I guess it's not really a surprise because it's another pipeline effectively that people can use to garner support, make connections across defence, albeit within the defence supply chain rather than with an end user. But like Stacey mentioned earlier, that's key, especially for the small to medium-sized enterprise kind of side of the market, because a lot of the time they are actually going to be lower tier supplier within an existing defence supply chain, right? That's the way that they're going to commercialise or they're going to need to commercialise their idea that turns into a product that eventually goes into a piece of kit, for example, that exists within the military. Now, I think as a general point, what's really important in that kind of scheme is enabling collaboration between those parties. Lots of people will already have those relationships in place, but lots of people won't. Mm -hmm. And a bit like engaging with defence, engaging with a higher tier supplier to defence or a strategic supplier is, again, can be a very scary place for some of these small companies to be existing in. So I think as an organisation who promotes innovation across defence and who wants to accelerate people's ideas, ultimately for the benefit of the end user in defence, it's really important to put an arm around these people and help them in fostering those relationships. And I think that's absolutely key. By the way, this is great. This is a new facet of DASA. This is the first time I've heard about this. So it's wonderful. You as an organization are continuing to innovate your offering, which I think is wonderful. It's a wonderful circle that goes around. How do you protect those? Can you? Is that your role? Or should you know protect those SMEs working with the primes? Because it is a very scary place for a small company to start operating with these tier ones because they know how to operate. They know they've got big legal teams. They know how to write these contracts in a way that protects themselves. That's, the, that's their job, the legal team. So what do you offer these smaller companies? Companies to protect them. So we have a specific role within DASA, our business relationship manager, whose job it is to act between the lower tier and the higher tier, but it's also their role to advise the lower tier on things like IP. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I guess the very construct of being within a Ministry of Defence sponsored grant funding scheme offers them some protection or, or comfort, really. I guess it's not they're operating within the bounds of the technology exploitation programme, which is on DTEP's terms. And it requires both parties to sign up to that and collaborate within that and put something into it, be it at the higher tier, they have to put some resource into it. The lower tier, they have to match the 50% grant so there's interest from both sides it's not necessarily one-sided but yeah i think the act of having some kind of support mechanism around the scheme by the virtue of the scheme existing itself and specific people within the scheme to advise i think that's our offer 
that's the main mechanism in which we're going to support both the SME side of it and the higher tier. Because remember, the higher tier isn't always necessarily defense strategic supplier. It's just somebody who's a higher tier within that supply chain. They themselves might be an SME. Hmm. I'd actually add to that. So more generically, we are very careful about supporting SMEs with making sure that they are ready to work with higher tier suppliers, that they understand the relationship that they are entering that they understand how to present their information and specifically protect their IPs. But we more generally are, you know, making them think about how that information is shared. So we're very careful in what we share, even within to government, let alone if we were going to help share it elsewhere. So really, we we do help them think about how they work with the large organisations and if they even do want to work with them. It's worth sort of underlining that point that most people don't sell direct to government. So a, lot, so a number of contracts are quite large, multi-year contracts, and actually most of the time you're going to be a supplier in part of the subsystem anyway. So you know that's why that industry partnership is probably really important because that's the route to market. But we're also trying to make sure that from our perspective, having more SMEs supply directly into defence and security is good for diversifying our supply chain as well. Mm-hmm. So we want different ideas. We want to be able to see some of these smaller businesses come through and deliver the new capabilities for defence organisations. So it's giving them options as much as anything and giving them more visibility so that they have that opportunity if that's the route they want to take. So it isn't just about using the existing supply chain. This is growing our supply chain and helping the suppliers, small and medium-sized enterprises in particular, understand what they're entering, what they need to be market ready if they would like to work with us. And so you've talked about how you support the SMEs, the bright ideas people, the larger primes and how they need to be better at supporting them. Are you also trying to influence the procurement organisations? Yeah, always. Uh, Half of my team's (laughs) job is really about that influence element and trying to help people understand the value of innovation and the value of working with these organizations, being able to look at different contracting methods to be able to work with these smaller businesses who won't have necessarily 10 years of evidence that their business has supplied (laughs) to a certain scale or, you know, so, so it's trying to help that thinking and behaving differently. We've got people directly in both main procurement arms of defence. So we've got them in defence equipment and support agency and also in defence digital, who are really the two key areas that are actually going to do the buying on behalf of the rest of defence. So it's just how we approach it and where we place our people to get that best value for the people with those great ideas. Perfect. As I said at the start of this interview, you know, I've gone through this process and I'm really proud about what we achieved. And I think it's worth talking through in generalities what we did just to show the process works. Although nothing's perfect. And I'll come to that at the end as well and hear your thoughts. So we came up with an idea, approached DASA. DASA put us in touch with the right people to help us formulate the concept. And then we submitted you know, you guys kindly gave us the, the, the funding to go and do our trial. That gave us access to Navy, Army, and Air Force for virtual reality and going, look, here's a VR headset. It's using gaming technology. What do you think, Navy, Army, Air Force? And that gave us that remit. So we could approach those customers, potential customers of ours, but with that kind of backing of, an, of a government organization behind us. So those doors were already open because they didn't feel scared about engaging with a commercial entity because we're already backed by government funding. So don't worry, it's not going to cost you money. You might learn something from it. So then we got the opportunity to go and see them. We got some unbelievable feedback, you know, troops and soldiers and Navy Army Air Force people are not backwards and coming forwards with feedback. So we refine the product really nicely. And then we were like, okay, 
you want it? And luckily, you know, and I would say this, but everyone we tried it with did want it. We were looking at ways in which how do we cross the gap? Because it really did exist. There weren't any pre-existing line items that were there. And then a few months later, I was down at DSCI's, an event in London on the DASA stand, and you approached me about this first customer concept. So if you've won a competitive competition for government, you can now use a first customer fund to fund the next step in your journey. And that was like, these doors were opening to us. We don't stop here. We can then take the next breath. And obviously went back to the customers that were interested in it. Say, don't worry, it's not going to cost you more money. Just here's the fund. It was great to see DASA evolving. It was great to have the support of DASA. And, and it's enabled us as a product to now not only have access into UK government, but that product's now grown based on that innovation and feedback to also selling internationally. Big pat on the back for us and hopefully for you guys as well. However, there's always areas of which and, and feedback, and I don't think I'll be doing service to people that have used the DASA process or any grant process where they've put effort and time into putting a proposal together. But the only criticism I would have so far of the process is that feedback is that we put in a proposal before where we loved it and we thought it was great and we thought it was going to revolutionize defense and, and the feedback we received maybe wasn't as detailed as it was a no, by the way, spoiler alert, but it was also was maybe not kind of detailed enough to allow us to test and adjust. Should we resubmit? Should we forget about it? Should we move on? Not put a proposal in for over a year now. So is that something you've, you've improved recently or maybe look to do in the future? With all of these things, it is that continual improvement. So we take on to, on board a lot of feedback, both from people like yourself on, on the uh, SME side of things, but from the people we work with within government as well to try and balance for both sides the amount of effort and pain potentially that you face <laughs> if you get feedback that, that's not helping give you a good guide. The challenge really is, is we've got a large volume of submissions versus the number of people who can have a look at it. So we, we heavily rely on the scientists within DSTL as well as identifying the people who potentially would use it within the frontline command who could use it but also who could potentially fund this in the future so it's trying to find that right mix and it can vary then depending on the individuals what kind of feedback we can give you that really supports you but what I would say is because we have evolved there's a lot more we do do to provide that support so it's giving you that conversation with people like Tom and his colleagues who are around the country who can help you evolve the content before it comes so making sure that you're thinking about certain things when you're doing that and you're pushing in a quality application but also if you're not successful trying to guide you to where you should look next so if we think actually we've got a themed competition coming up so you've done your vr focused product and actually we've got some big training related program coming along we'll let you know that these things are here and maybe with some tweaks you could submit into that and focus on the content required there but we also have our alternative funding models. And that's that's because sometimes the products we see, they're not quite over into that commercialization space, but they needed something a little bit different, which is why, as earlier Tom mentioned, the defense innovation loans, that actually the equivalent of a bank loan might be the better thing for you or some of the other opportunities we have might be the right thing versus our more early innovation type challenges. So, so we are evolving and we're trying to address it in different ways way so we give a better wraparound service for the innovators who work with us 
Yes, and I'll also elaborate on that. For us, it was not just the access to the customers, but also it was the marketing and PR and everything that comes with winning those competitions that allowed us to elevate people's awareness of what we do and showing that we're working with DASA and UK government as well. So it isn't just the money. In fact, it's equal 50% of and then the rest of it, the wraparound support. One of the really big things is actually we do a lot more case studies. So they're getting out much more. And, and I think we're starting to see some videos as well on, on our social media channels and YouTube. So that we're getting that information out more frequently so that we get for us, you know, it's showing the impact we have as an organization on behalf of uh, our customers and potential customers. But for you, it's, it's getting that greater visibility and you having an impact, even if it is in Australia, actually, that is good news because it's not wasted taxpayers money. Probably worth adding just for clarity, a successful scheme that's promoting innovation should be busy. And sometimes things just don't get selected because, hey, there was five other good ideas. We could only do five, not because that sixth idea wasn't any good. And sometimes you need, there's this, I've seen sometimes have another go, tweak it, have another go. I mean, that, like Edison said, he got the light bulb right on his sort of thousands and one version, didn't he? Sometimes I don't know what you're talking about. Our, our proposal was amazing, Colin. <laughs> not you. Yeah, not you. But yeah, people like Edison, they, they need a few goes at it. Yeah. There is a serious point there, though, isn't there? And I think that's where having your front door to DASA or having your front, a front door to any innovation funder mm. is important. It's because you can have somebody to advise you on exactly that, right? Yeah. Whether it's worth your time pursuing this any further. Mm. Uh, because that's yes. quite valuable yeah. for a, you know, especially for a yeah. small company who are maybe time poor, but they've got a million and one th- other things going on. Is it really worth their time either applying in the first place or mm. pursuing one of the alternative funding mechanisms that me and Stacey have been talking about I think that's quite valuable in itself yeah I will say I've been guilty of this many times but sometimes you're the solution looking for a problem and actually (laughs) just find the right problem as ever coming to the end of this conversation now would we say that we have filled in the chasm or do we think the chasm just has a few stepping stones and we're trying to firm up those stepping stones and make them as wide as possible I'd say we're not completely across it. I think there's definitely <laughs> stepping stones and we're building up some nice uh, you know, <laughs> shingle or gravel or something underneath <laughs> it to just shore it all up to get there. Can we do more? Possibly. Is it for DASA to do that? I don't know. It's equally its ownership within the organisations who could procure these innovations. And that, like I say, is with my team, that's where they're really working hard to think about how can we encourage that interest in innovation and interest in funding through to the future. Awesome. Just to add to that, I guess the key is in a lot of the things that we fund or any innovation funder puts money into, a lot of them are going to go nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is high risk. This is high risk work. If everything we funded was a glorious success, then we are not taking enough risk as an organization Mm. because we're interested in disruptive ideas. We're interested in things that potentially completely change the way that somebody does something for the better. And a proportion of those ideas are going to go nowhere just by the very nature of, of this. But it's important that the ones that are successful and that are genuinely disruptive and that do meet their aims, they don't fall through those cracks. So I think it's really about making those cracks smaller and smaller and smaller so it's harder for people to fall down them because inevitably people are going to drop off along the way for lots and lots of reasons that aren't necessarily to do with them not being able to get into a procurement, for example. Mm-hmm. And it might just be because their idea at the onset wasn't quite the same one as uh, what's been developed through a couple of iterations of grant funding, for example. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of reasons why ideas will just fall by the wayside, but it's critical for the ones that are successful in their aims that we can we can pull those through and we can exploit those within defence and security. Perfect. Colin, is there anything else you want to add? 
No, I think that's a great ending. Thank you again for giving us your time and can't wait for my next submission. <laughs> looking forward to it. We'll be looking out your name. <laughs> I've got an idea for okay, a podcast. No. <laughs> Which really thought-provoking interview there and I'm very grateful for Stacey and Tom. Another Tom coming on the show. Probably the light bulb moment for me was, of course, that DASA is an open to international applications, so you don't have to be a company from the UK and it's open to companies of all sizes. So their objective is about how they foster innovation and get it out to the front line. doesn't matter who you are. So I thought that was an important point to underline. And in the background, I'm also working hard to find and invite guests from other nations that are focusing on innovation to understand better how they do it so we can all learn from each other. So Colin, are you ready to be AI'd? Yep, can't wait. Let's bring it on. Okay, well, here we go. Tame journalist, news update from Trading and Simulation, and Tom has been playing with AI. Here we go. Andy, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Morning, listeners. Or afternoon, whatever time of the day. So, so last week, I promised you that we would look into ChatGPT and maybe even answer a question. Not only answer a question, but also make it speak back to us so that listeners can listen to the response. I've actually gone a step further for you as well. So I've got things to share with both you and Colin. Neither of you have actually seen this yet. So in terms of what what question I was thinking about giving ChatGPT, I didn't put a lot of thought into it, I've got to be honest. And we all want to make millions. So I've decided to, I wanted to use it to give me a business idea. The query I put in was give me a business idea or a business example of how ChatGPT could be used to support national defense. That was the question, provide an answer, which I'll play back to you guys in a second. And then I took it a step further and I said, well, okay, with that answer, could you also go through the steps required in order to produce such a product as well. So it's, it's got a little bit deeper. So are you ready to listen to the response? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. For the benefit of the listener, I stepped out of the recording at that stage and sent them a video or a link to URL on YouTube, which showed not only the questions being answered, but also a graphical tool, an AI tool for taking the pictures from LinkedIn of Colin and I and animating those pictures to say the words that ChatGPT generated. And now this is the audio from ChatGPT. One potential business idea for using ChatGPT in support of national defense is a chatbot system that can assist military personnel in various tasks. For example, the chatbot could be used to help soldiers quickly access information on enemy tactics and terrain, as well as provide quick translations of foreign languages. Additionally, the chatbot could be integrated into communication systems to help soldiers quickly compose and send messages to other units in the field. The chatbot could also be used to assist with logistics, such as tracking supplies and equipment, and providing real-time updates on weather conditions and other factors that could impact operations. Overall, the chatbot could be designed to help soldiers make more informed decisions and be more effective in the field. Here are some general steps that could be taken to develop a chatbot system for national defense using ChatGPT. Define the problem and goals, understand the specific needs and requirements of the military personnel who will be using the chatbot. Identify the key tasks and information that the chatbot should be able to assist with. Research and gather data, gather data on the enemy tactics, terrain, and languages that the chatbot will need to be able to understand and assist with. Develop the chatbot, use the data gathered in step 2 to train ChatGPT on the specific tasks and information that the chatbot will need to assist with. The chatbot can be developed as a standalone application or integrated into existing systems. Test and refine the chatbot. Test the chatbot with a group of military personnel to gather feedback and identify any issues or areas that need improvement. 
Use this feedback to refine the chatbot and ensure that it is meeting the needs of the users. Deploy the chatbot. Once the chatbot has been tested and refined, it can be deployed to military units in the field. Monitor and maintain the chatbot. Continuously monitor the chatbot's performance and gather feedback from users to identify any issues that need to be addressed. Regularly update the chatbot's knowledge with new information and use cases to maintain its performance. That's enough of that. First of all, never ever use that deep fake again. It's very creepy. <laughs> that whole thing took me no more than 120 seconds from going on to ChatGPT to put in the query to getting the answer to going on to DID to generate that deep fake. It was genuinely less than 120 seconds for the whole process and for it to be spat out as a video that could be consumed. Now, don't get me wrong, and you're right, Colin, it's very generic. I didn't put a lot of effort into the right questions and querying because it was just proving the concept and showing that it worked. I think it's pretty cool as a proof of concept. <laughs> well, it'll be, I mean, it'd be very interesting if you actually gave it quite specific questions. Where could it go? And it's certainly useful. I mean, it's like everything. It's useful as a framework, and then you could build stuff off. I was thinking about this over the weekend and I was chatting to someone when, when I first started in work, I just missed the closure of the typing pool. So there was basically a big room full of typists. And what you would do, Tom, back in the day, you would hand, wrote, hand write your uh, document. You would take it to the typing pool and two days later it would come back. <laughs> and I was sort of relating this to that and going, it would be absolutely ridiculous if I said to you to do that. But to say use a word processor application to create your document we wouldn't class it as cheating, would we? We'd just class it as doing something quicker. And so it goes back to this tool. It's like, it's an automation tool. We actually have to understand how we use this to get our jobs done better and quicker. And Absolutely. that's the challenge. It's not, isn't it cool or isn't that spooky? And it is spooky sometimes, but so yeah, that's going to be to level two quicker because it took me 120 seconds while I made a cup of tea. And then I can actually put my real human brain to it to add the nuances, the context. It's a momentous time. It's a time to be alive, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Andy, how did you find that video? I think great work. And I think it's just eye-opening to what you can achieve in terms of getting information together, putting it together, and then presenting it. We're just at the sort of beginning. I think there was a story over the weekend of the Financial Times by Camilla Cavendish. And she says, ChatGBT will force school exams out of the dark age. So instead yes. of worrying about plagiarism, perhaps she's suggesting that, you know, teachers and or lecturers should worry about how do you make sure that when people do read these, that they do question them, they do fact check everything. Mm -hmm. That is more the issue for the generation going forward, not worrying about plagiarism. And she's saying it's about the critical yeah. thinking skills are more important than rote learning. I mean, she's saying also that you do need to be able to read, write and count. But, <laughs> but basically, it's in terms of the thinking skills, it's just changing. It's a kind of wake up call for education, but how quickly that will change, I don't know. Well, um, and, and just another dip. I remember when I did my A-level maths and further maths. That's how sad I am. We were told to buy a graphical calculator. So the graphical calculator could solve polynomials and stuff like that. But there were times that we were told to put it away. And there were times we were told to get it out and use it. And as you rightly say, Andy, it's knowing how to use the tools as well as knowing how to do it without the tool. And in a previous discussion, we had, it, like a tool, you know, it is a bit, it seems like going from a, a manual saw to a chainsaw. 
in the sense that yeah the chainsaw is incredibly much more productive but it's also much more dangerous so oh, I, love, I, love, I love the analogy because it's like yeah you can definitely cut well cut your leg off with ai <laughs> no but I, I, I think it's that idea that this tool is a huge step change and you've obviously in a way it's, it's more dangerous for that but also much more productive i've read that google feel they've been caught short with all of this so they've stepped in with a new task force but i think militaries need to do the same thing with this you know they need to have summits within and i know i'm often told oh yeah they are but i do wonder you know our organization militaries across the world are they setting up summits and saying actually what does this mean for defense and they need to get on with it really it's everything isn't it it's the national health service it's everywhere how can this be implemented in order to produce efficiencies and a friend of mine was using it over the weekend and he said that you know it's just you know spitting out the same paragraphs it's it's pretty formulaic and i said well have you asked it to give you different paragraphs or have you asked it to specify have you given it different have you used the tool properly have you used the tool properly yeah Yeah. and he's like oh no (laughs) so i have now and it's given me a different response i was like yeah well done (laughs) (laughs) anyway i hope that was interesting the uh, link to the video will be in the show notes will also be on the linkedin page as well so i hope that people will enjoy watching myself and colin look extremely creepy and speaking at them yeah what's the, what do they call that it's the well, it's not uncanny valley though because that's just creepy that it's creepy valley that's what they call well, it one of them was a bit uncanny valley myself but i won't say which of you were <laughs> <laughs> all right over to you andy i'll stop monopolizing your time your special time we've got a packed show yeah so I, i'm going to start with an article that was in mst military simulation training it's not about technology it's about live training and i think the interesting about the politics of training, the politics of exercises. So and a couple of, it's going to be a related story. So the first one is the Indian Air Force and the Japan Air Self-Defense Force. In fact, right now they're holding joint air exercises for the first time, titled The Air Garden 2023, where VIR stands for brave in Indy. So I, I think it's, uh, that's interesting. And of course, when you start digging into these, yeah, the article was in, in MSNT, but there's another related story which is interesting is India have been introducing women pilots into their air force over quite a few years, well, since the mid-2010s. This is the first time they're sending a woman fighter pilot into a, an international exercise. So I guess that's quite a statement they're trying to make, which is good. So squadron leader Avani Chaturverdi, and she's going to be out on this exercise. And that's sort of making the headlines. So this is a story from the Times of India. There are now 17 women fighter pilots in the Indian Air Force. And like many air forces, the Indian Air Force has got a shortage of pilots. They should have over 4,000 pilots. So uh, interesting. And altogether, uh, they've got now 145 women helicopter and transport pilots. So I thought it was interesting because it's India and Japan coming together on not something you would necessarily uh, think was going to happen. These exercises that happen, geopolitical statements, aren't they? So what do we think, what do we surmise the geopolitical statement is is being made with the Japan and India training together? That's probably above my pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a coming together you naturally think of. I mean, obviously, I guess maybe we think more in NATO terms and the various arrangements in the Pacific Ocean. But this is across two oceans. So uh, perhaps because concerns of China, that's sending a signal. Yeah, that's what it seems like. It just seemed like quite an interesting coming together, which I hadn't seen before. I think the interesting point is we're not unfamiliar with, say, NATO exercises across Europe or even as far as out as Australia. But this also goes on with non-NATO partners. It's interesting. As Andy says, above our pay grade to comment on why. 
you know, with all the talk of live training and simulation training, one can't forget the signals that these send politically. So that is a reason to do this. Just following on from that, there's going to be an exercise in February in South African waters, and that's going to bring together, this is reported in Reuters today, where Russia and China are going to exercise with South African forces in South African waters. And apparently, the South African National Defence Force said, the aim is to strengthen the already flourishing relations between South Africa, Russia and China. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting quote. The other aspect to it, the Russians sending the admiral of the fleet of the Soviet Union, Korshkov, which is uh, armed with these hypersonic Zircon missiles. So, I mean, this is a great headline. Don't you agree, gents? <laughs> you do wonder if it's that amazing. Why isn't it? In the, why is it amazing <laughs> doing something uh, in you know in the Black Sea? But it does send a huge political signal. I think it sounds like a very safe place to go and put a very important ship, <laughs> as opposed to the Black Sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, I don't think it takes the brains of an archbishop to work out why that ship's on a training exercise and not somewhere else. Go on, humour me, then, Colin. Well. <laughs> because it doesn't work (laughs) yet. If you study anything about Russian naval shipbuilding. If you read up on this ship, this particular ship, it has had problems in terms of construction. But let's be honest, procurement, uh, I don't think is a unique problem in Russia. It has had a little bit of a troubled history. But the serious point is that, yeah, that sends a message. Those three countries see that, well, we're not hugely worried about Ukraine Mm -hmm. and what our allies think. So speaking of Ukraine, your third story for us is Yeah, and uh, what is big in the news in terms of Ukraine is is sending tanks there. I mean, it's interesting to me because tanks didn't seem to do very well beginning with, and now suddenly everyone wants them. So some of our listeners will be aware the UK has sort of stepped in and and said, well, we're sending Challenger 2 tanks. And is that a signal for then other countries to send the Leopard? Well, there's far more Leopard tanks around. so. So the UK is sending, I think it's 14 tanks. People are going to think, oh, yeah, send the tanks. But I think our point of discussion is around the training side of that. You can't, obviously, you need to send trained people. So in Spectator over the weekend, there's an article by James Jeffrey, who's an ex-British Army Challenger 2 commander and more. He said in this article, it's going to be a six-week course in the UK. They will have to know something about tanks, but apparently it's six weeks. It just seems an extraordinarily short period of time. There's a few stories that we've dug up. And what's really fascinating is behind all these decisions for, you know, just call it heavy weapons into theatre, is a trade-off between effectiveness and the training burden. So what you don't see, you know, like the duck paddling frantically under the water, it looks pretty serene, but actually there's a lot of people working very hard to get the training and probably logistics in place. And they say logistics is one thing, but training, if you have the wrong platform, it can actually set you back. So I think there was a comment from a retired US general about why the Abrams wasn't sent. And I think the comment was something like, it's got a jet engine. It isn't like a diesel engine. You can't just put it out in the field and hope these, you know, if these guys turn the wrong lever, that's just an expensive target. A lot of that is governing the decision process. I mean, yes, there's other issues as well, but you know, in terms of what do you send, the easy stuff is stuff that's very similar to what you've got. All right, so ex-Soviet platforms. Then when you run out of that, you go, what now? Just some further context, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK who spoke on the 20th of January, just last Friday, he was saying that in an interview, he said the crews are about to start their training in prison. And this isn't just tanks. The heavy artillery systems crews are already training. Their tankers, I guess the, the tank uh, crews, will arrive soon as well. He states that the training will not take long, as British instructors say Ukrainian troops are highly motivated and learn very quickly. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and apparently, it take he he was quoted saying it takes five weeks to train the infantry here in the UK, which we spoke about in a previous uh, episode. Didn't we? we have trained ten thousand, and they have started to train twenty thousand more since the beginning of the new year. It's hard to estimate how many tankers we will need to train. That's tank crews. Moreover, they are also artillerists, mechanics, and commanders. I think a month and a half will be enough. The tanks are supposed to be supplied with are already being prepared to be sent to Ukraine. So they haven't quite left. So anyway, that's breaking news from Friday. So I think that's all interesting content. So they, I think people are really interested in Ukraine, but it's also, why is it so quick? Can't we train everyone really quickly? <laughs> <laughs> Our own people, but, you know, in, just in general. My reflection on that is it's six weeks in the UK. But but it's not six weeks full stop. That I you know I assume they may have been receiving tactics training and theory training before they get here. Then they get to the UK, they do their hands on training. Probably I guess mainly around this is what it looks like, this is what it feels like. These are all the skills based things you need to learn from an instructor. But then they still could continue their training when they're back in the country to, to again to continue to further their understandings. Oh, it sounds great. I mean, I have spoken to somebody who's in the know talking about the use of technology simulation training for what's going on in Ukraine. And again. Unfortunately, not something we could discuss on this podcast right now. I'm sure in the future we can do, but it is being used as well. This is not just a, here's an instructor, get your hands on, but there is virtual reality and all the technologies being used to support training, which is great because it should be. And it's been great to use as long as it's used in the right way. Yes. And a bit like our chat GPT at some stage, you know, this isn't just the UK, this is across the world, you know, defense training or learning establishments will need to be learning all these lessons and hopefully uh, they'll have opportunity to do that because... I guess there's nothing like war to force the mm-hmm. change. Agreed. So, uh, yeah, a true transformational, and as I say, hopefully we'll learn more in future. Another one, it just keeps on giving, is Microsoft and the US Army and IVAS, which I know, for those who listen for the first time, this is the US Army Integrated Visual Augmentation System. And the reason it keeps on giving is that sometimes you think it's going well, sometimes you think it's been cancelled, and sometimes it's just been delayed. There was another wave of news recently saying, oh, it's all gone wrong, it's all cancelled. But just before Christmas, the US Senator, sorry, rejected the US Army's £400 million request to procure up to six, nearly 7,000 headsets. So these are going to be used in the field. So they're not just in your bedroom. You know, they've got to be completely soldier proof. It's interesting, each of this is 58,000 when you look at, if you do the maths or the math. So they're, they're not cheap, these headsets. Wow. I, I've just done a rough division well you've yeah. got project management in there you've got but they're not cheap they're not request to updates but, uh, <laughs> so what is actually happening the news last week was that microsoft is eliminating ten thousand jobs and trimming some of its hardware line and it will reduce its hololens goggle business as it scales back work on the headset for the army that congress declined to fund this year according to people familiar with the matter so my take on it is that they're not going to buy them to put out in the field. They're going to do more testing. And also Microsoft are working on is a version 1.1 and also they're looking to version 2. So, yeah, it's easy to knock these projects. But again, going back to our Russian frigate, problems in procurement aren't unique. Andy, what's interesting beneath the surface here, and you and I have both been burnt by this in the past on projects, but if you choose technology that is tied to a bigger program, like a really big thing, you can have someone like Microsoft turn around next year and go, we're not doing that anymore. And then you go, oh, you scramble around trying to find a replacement. So sometimes you're having big organizations involved in technology is great because there's a lot of investment going in to something that's a difficult problem to solve. But it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? If they then go, oh, numbers don't look good, we're going to cancel that, do something else. 
and you've decided to build your training system on that technology base, what do you do now? That's a great point, Colin. Many of the listeners know I'm quite on the front foot with technology and embracing gaming tech and that kind of side for many years. But yeah, what if that is a new CEO who says, no, I'm not interested in getting involved in defence? There's a, there's a phrase in yeah. technology that's like the settlers get rich and the pioneers get murdered or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> You're too far up ahead and you just get you get shot. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a threat. That's not a threat. Andy, okay? Okay. Just, I'm not going to shoot you. Yeah, for every person like me, there's always someone who just will say, oh, no, you can't do it that way. But, you know, the same can apply to any digital technology and indeed any company that makes sort of heavy metal as well. They can go out of business. And so, yeah, it's definitely a strategic view procurement people need to have. So that was it, really. I think, yeah, I was quite a wide sweep there. Thank you. I'm looking forward to speaking to you in a couple of weeks' time. Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Colin, what do you think of deep fake Colin? Yeah, as I said, very creepy. Thank you for that. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Ah, I said, and don't worry, it's going to be going out to uh, on all the social media channels, predominantly. And now here's a great segue, plugging in the LinkedIn page. So if you just search for Warfighter Podcast, and then you can find it, you can sign up to it there, and you'll be able to see our faces being AI generated. And, and just to, to finish that off, I sent it to a good friend of mine, and his response was, that's the sequel to a chatbot horror film franchise right there. I was like, thanks, thanks, mate. <laughs> I mean, the visuals is one thing, but could you change the voice for next time? I inten- genuinely point. intentionally picked the you most picked unpleasant, creepy... Thing. Yeah, I did. Yes, I did for you. Yes, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> That's it. I mean, anything else you want to add before we close off? Yeah, just to underline that we're really interested in stories internationally and individuals and, and any bit of feedback, really. That's our real push. We don't want to keep it too too centric to our little world. So that's kind of how you'll see things develop. So do get in touch and do engage on the LinkedIn socials if you've got any thoughts. Yeah, no, I'm I'm still waiting for the first person to go to uh, warfighterpodcast.com. In the bottom right corner, there is the press the button to record your voice answer message. So I'd, I'm, I'm looking forward to that first first event. That'll be a big event in my life. I'll let everyone know. Tom's checking his inbox every day and no one's leaving a message. It's terrible. Makes me sad. Right, that's enough of that. Have a great couple of weeks, everybody, and speak soon. Bye.